Okay, would you stand with me? I want to read uh, the first five verses of Luke chapter 23, and then we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It'll be on your screen. I'll read to you, and then uh, I'll get you to join me in part of 1 Timothy. So it says this. Then the whole company of those arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And now First Timothy. Uh, it's going to be on the screen. When we get to the bold italicized part, I'm going to invite you to join me. It's Paul writing to Timothy. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of, Je and of Christ Jesus, who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Would you join me? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be eternal, eternal dominion. Amen. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, it is our heart's desire to set our hearts upon you, Jesus, upon your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we might know you better, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord, that you'd speak to us through your word, that that we might know the Father and understand our salvation greater, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. Well, if uh, you haven't been with us, we've been making our way through uh, Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we've come to chapter 23 here. Um, it's after the night that Jesus was betrayed, and the night that Jesus was betrayed concluded with an early morning uh, Jewish religious trial where the Sanhedrin gathered. That was the religious leaders of the people. And they gathered and they asked Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they said to him, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you are right in saying so. And then in the midst of their trial, they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The, the, the religious leaders of that time knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. They knew that he was claiming to be Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And as we talked about last week, it would have been blasphemy had it not been true. He'd given all the evidence needed but it would be sealed with his death and with his resurrection. And so after his condemnation by the Sanhedrin, we come to this text this morning. Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, who alone possessed the authority to administer capital punishment in Israel. Pilate administered um, the, the 
Roman province of Palestine from the coastal city of Caesarea. He didn't live in Jerusalem, but he had come to Jerusalem at this time in particular because it was Passover. And he was there not because he was participating in the religious celebrations. He was there because high religious holidays were times of uprisings, of of potential problems and, and riots and political tension between the Jews and the Romans. And so if there was a time of year when nationalistic pride of Israel was going to swell and it was going to lead to some sort of uprising, Passover was the ideal time. The city, as we've seen in in previous weeks through uh, Luke, had swollen from just 70,000 residents to well over a million, maybe two million people because Passover was high holiday. And so Pilate was there. And the relationship between him and the Jewish people was historically tenuous, to say the least. So Pilate was making his presence known. And he was not seeking to interrupt the religious celebration, but have no doubt, the, the Roman presence, the might of the Roman soldier was apparent, and it was highly visible during Passover. Now, the Sanhedrin had already decided Jesus was going to die, but they didn't have the authority, so they, they brought him to Jesus. And for, for the Jews, the trial of Jesus, the night that he was arrested, being brought before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin was completely religious for them. It was a religious trial. He was claiming to be Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And the religious claims of Jesus were completely meaningless to Pilate. So when the leaders bring Jesus before Pilate, they were sure to politicize the charges. So when you think about it, you know, the Jewish trial was religious in its nature and the Gentile Roman trial was political in its nature. Jesus stood before Jews. He stood before Gentiles. He had a religious trial. He had a political court. And they brought three charges against him. They said this, This man, first charge, is misleading our nation. Subversion. He's undermining Roman power and authority, which I would say was a false charge, and so did Pilate. Jesus had made it clear. The nature of his kingdom was not political. He had come to save people from their sin. Second charge was this. He was forbidding uh, tribute to Caesar, which... Again, we know is not true. We've seen this in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you give to God what is God's. Third charge, he is saying that he is Christ, a king. Now this, this Jesus did claim, but when Pilate condemned him to death, uh, this was actually exactly the charge that was posted on the cross. As we know, it was nailed above the head of Jesus on the cross. It said, Jesus, King of the Jews. And the religious leaders said, don't put that there. Say that he claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. So P- Jesus is brought before Pilate. The first two charges are ignored, I would say. And he just turns and he asks Jesus this, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him. He said, you have said so, which is the affirmative. You said it. The gospel writers all present this as a confirmation of Jesus to this question. And Paul wrote about this to Timothy in 1 
Timothy chapter 6. We read these verses just a few minutes ago. He said, Timothy, Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And Timothy, I charge you. I charge you, we confess that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. That was the, that, that, that charge, that confession that Paul recounted to Timothy uh, was the faithful confession of the early church. That's what they believed. That was the truth that they clung to about the Lord Jesus. That was the, the confession, the faithful confession that they made when they faced suffering and persecution and trial. And Paul charged Timothy. Timothy, Jesus was faithful and he made a good confession before Pilate. When Pilate asked him, are you the Christ? Jesus did not hedge. Jesus did not shirk. Jesus did not neglect the Father's purpose. He didn't take advantage of the opportunity to escape suffering. Jesus didn't run from the purpose of God. Jesus did not try to flee in that moment. He made the good confession. Are you the Christ? Pilate asked him. And he answered in the affirmative. You said it. And Paul told Timothy, this is the very thing that motivates you and I. This is the very thing, Timothy, that's to motivate the church. This is the very thing, Timothy, that is to motivate you and I to make the good confession ourselves before men or in the face of suffering or in the face of persecution. You know, the early church, their history is well recounted and when the early church was faced with burning incense to Caesar and confessing Caesar as Lord, Many refused and they made the good confession. We have no king but Jesus. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. And in the time of the Romans, many of the early believers sealed that confession with their death. And so I like this, in this sense that Jesus faced charges. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I charge you. I charge you, Jesus faced charges, and I charge you, Timothy. Jesus made the good confession, therefore, his church must confess. His church must confess before men, before rulers, in the face of suffering, in the face of trial or persecution. Jesus is our only and blessed sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Christ, the Lord. Christ Jesus made the good confession before Pilate. And he said this, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus made the good confession. He didn't back down before the enemy. He knew his Father in heaven was watching over him. He knew his Father in heaven would raise him from the dead. The God who gives life to all things, the one whom we serve is the reason why The church need never fear. Do not be afraid, church. Remember Jesus and his bold confession and take heart. And Pilate actually said, I find no guilt in him. Look again at verse 5 of chapter 23. It says this, but they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. 
Now, Pilate was actually in a really hard spot, which we're going to talk about a little further a little later. But finding out that Jesus was the Galilean was the escape that Pilate needed. It was the information that he needed to sidestep, to shirk his responsibility in this situation that was going to be a lose-lose for him. So Pilate clarified verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod's not one of those likable characters in Scripture, is he? He was a... Uh, uh, I don't know, a worldly, carnal, sensual man, all about physical pleasure, all about entertainment. Not, not a man who was interested in spiritual things. He was worldly. He'd taken his brother's wife. John the Baptist had confronted him. John had called out the ruler of the people, and he said, how Herod is living is not right, and we know what happened. Herod killed him for it. And Herod wanted to see Jesus do some miracle. He wanted to see Jesus do amazing things. And so the questions began with, you know, inquisitive, curious, intrigue. But when Jesus would not answer him, intrigue began to turn to interrogation. Look at verse 9. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And Herod wanted to see a miracle. I would say a magic trick. You know, he wanted to be entertained. He wasn't interested in the claims of Christ. He was interested in the sensational. And maybe if Jesus had appealed to his senses, he would have believed, but I, I really don't think so about Herod. You know, Jesus doesn't do card tricks. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do sleight of hands, which is for charlatans and for conmans. He's not an entertainer. He's a king. Amen. And Jesus makes a claim on our lives. And the word of God tells us this, that he binds up bro the brokenhearted, that a bruised reed he will not break, and he opens the eyes of the blind. But those who love the world have to be confronted by the one who made the world. And a longing to see miracles for entertainment is not a game that the Son of God plays. Herod asked for miracles even though the whole ministry of Jesus had been full of miracles. See, Jesus does miracles, but the thing about miracles is this. Miracles don't produce faith. You know, when I think about this, I always think about the children of Israel, the generation that was led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, no generation ever saw more miracles. They witnessed the plagues. The Passover, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They tasted bitter water that was made sweet. They drank water from a, a rock for 40 years. They ate bread from heaven. Their sandals did not wear out. There was no sickness among them. They watched the earth open and consumed the rebellious. They saw Aaron's staff bud and produce almonds overnight. They saw God descend on the top of a mountain and heard his voice and his commands were revealed to them. They saw their enemies defeated and the provision of God. Those bitten by venomous snakes 
were healed. Their enemies' curses were turned into blessings by God. Never was there a generation that saw more miracles than that generation, and they were excluded from the land of promise. Why? Because of unbelief. Signs and wonders and miracles do not produce faith. And thankfully, our God does work in the realm of the miraculous. With the word, he spoke the, the heavens and the earth into existence. So miraculous, the miraculous is a part of his kingdom, but it's never about entertainment. Miracles are about his care for his people. And Jesus does not do works of power to convince the cynic. That's why often he would work in the miraculous in someone's life and then he would instruct them, don't tell anyone. I'm not looking for a crowd. Jesus doesn't do the miraculous to attract a crowd. He does it to demonstrate his love for his children, to demonstrate his care and his concern and his compassion for us. When he was raised from the dead, Jesus didn't go looking for Pilate. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't go to Herod and say, I told you so, do you believe now? Hey, Herod, how's this for a miracle? I rose from the dead. He didn't rub it in his face to convince him. No, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, sought out his disciples and those who followed him. He sought out individuals one at a time. At one time, he appeared to a group of more than 500, not to entertain but to to give evidence and to confirm the hope of those who had put their trust in him. It was not misplaced. It was not lost. When you trust in Christ, you will not be misguided. And so miracles don't produce faith. But I'll tell you this, if you serve Christ Jesus, you will experience miracles. But you can't get the cart before the horse. (laughs) Or better yet, you can't get the cart before the one who drives the cart. And Herod wanted to see a miracle, and what he got was silence, which is amazing to me. Remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh. He came and dwelt among us, and he was silent. But there were those not silent, those vehemently accusing him, I think, You know, if you could pull back the curtain and see into the spiritual realm that the demons were there with the crowd accusing him. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. It's crazy that until this time, there was hostility that existed between Pontius, Pilate, and Herod. Friction between them, animosity. They saw each other as a threat, a hostile to their own dominion and rule and power over this little world. But that day, they found unity with each other. They became friends. Pilate gained ground with Herod when when he acknowledged Herod's jurisdiction by sending Jesus to him. And Herod recognized the realm of Pilate's authority by sending Jesus back to him. And together, they found friendship and unity in their rejection of Christ. They clothed Jesus in a splendid robe and they mocked him. The psalmist said this in Psalm 2, 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Pilate and Herod, rulers of the earth, took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then we read in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man who was misleading, as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Three times, actually, we're going to read one more yet, that Pilate declared that he had examined Jesus and he had found that he had done nothing deserving death. For sure, he was the innocent, spotless Lamb of God without blemish. The various gospel accounts tell us of multiple people that testified to the innocence of Jesus. There was Pilate, there was Herod, there was Pilate's wife. Even Judas Iscariot admitted that he had betrayed innocent blood before he took his life. The thief on the cross testified, confessed that he was being justly crucified, but Jesus was innocent. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The centurion that stood at the cross superintending the, the crucifixion confessed, truly this man was the son of God. Jesus was innocent. Three times Pilate declared that Jesus was innocent. And trying to appeal to the crowd, he even said that, that he, would, uh, he would flog him to appease their thirst for blood and then release him. But look at verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. We know this about Barabbas. He was a convicted murderer. He was an insurrectionist. His crimes were worse than that which Jesus was being accused of, and he was convicted. But the Romans had a practice at Passover, a way of you know, gaining favor, purchasing favor from the people of Israel. They would release to them a prisoner. It was a sort of olive branch, a symbol of extending peace to those that were under their rule. And the crowd cried out together against Jesus and their appeal to Pilate. And they said this, let's make a trade, Pilate, a swap. 
in exchange, let's make a deal. Take Jesus and give us Barabbas. Verse 20, it says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him, punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Well, when you read this, it's like you really get that sense that this is like just an out of control situation. Pilate was being pushed hard and he was, he was falling and they had him. They had him between a rock and a hard place. He was, he was in Jerusalem for this very reason that there was potential for uprising at Passover. And it was like being on, for Pilate, being on thin ice in the spring. He knew it was tenuous. He had made the might and the power of Rome visibly apparent, but he was on thin ice. And he was on thin ice with Rome. Church historians record that Pilate already had two strikes against him and Caesar had warned him one more and he was done for. Pilate, interestingly enough, was, was not born into the hierarchy of the elite. Pilate was born a slave. And he scratched and he clawed his way up by hook and by crook, stepping, uh, stepping over those below him and manipulating those above him. He was a butt kisser, a bootlicker. He scratched and clawed his way to be governor. And the Roman province of Palestine was his first appointment. And it wasn't prestigious, but he was still governor. And the first mistake that he made was this, that when he entered Jerusalem the first time, he paraded under the Roman eagle. And I don't know what he knew about Jewish religious practices, but Jews saw it as a pagan graven image being flaunted in Jerusalem and a riot ensued and there was Jewish bloodshed. Strike one. Next, Pilate saw that the city was in the mountains with little water supply, so he decided that he would build an aqueduct towards the city of Jerusalem. But rather than burden the emperor's war chest, he observed that there was ample funds being brought into the Jewish temple. So he stole from their temple and when it was discovered, there was another riot that began to stir. So Pilate did this. He dressed up his soldiers in civilian clothes. He sent them up onto the temple mount with their swords tucked away. And when things escalated, the soldiers let loose. And things went really bad. The, the blood of some of the Galileans was spilt, and it was mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. There's a reference to that elsewhere in Scripture. Strike two. So Rome told him, one more blunder like that and it's curtains for you. And the crowd could say to him, one more blunder, Pontius Pilate, and you're done. We don't want this, Jesus. Crucify him and give us Barabbas. And Pilate's wife had warned him, I suffered terribly in a dream because of this man. Do not have anything to do with him but the crowd demanded that he be crucified and their voices prevailed. Look again at verse 24. 
So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Amazing that Pilate is both the man who declared Jesus innocent and condemned him to death. The innocence of Christ is the key to this passage here in Luke. Luke wants us to know, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that Jesus was blameless, that he was without guilt. We know this Pilate famously washed his hands, but Jesus never had to wash his hands because they were clean. And he was traded. There was a business transaction that took place. A deal was struck. Men were negotiating one life for another, bargaining the sinless, spotless, innocent life of Jesus for the life of a convicted felon. An innocent man was exchanged for an incarcerated man. An innocent man was traded for a guilty man. It was playing out on earth as it is in heaven because the Lamb of God was being traded to rescue sinful man. And Barabbas symbolizes every sinner set free by the death of Jesus. You and I are Barabbas. Being held by sin is a literal sentence of death. Sin is incarceration, but Christ came to set sinners free to offer his life as a trade in exchange for ours. In church, we never get tired of hearing the gospel because you and I are Barabbas and Christ Jesus gave his life to set us free. I love what David writes in the 32nd Psalm. He said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's amazing that that was written by a man who himself was a great sinner, guilty of murder and adultery and lying. A man who said that when he kept silent, his bones were wasting away and the hand of God was heavy upon him. But then he acknowledged his sin. When he no longer covered his iniquity, when he said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, the Lord forgave his iniquity and sin. And the word of God says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust in him. This morning, I have one simple application for you, and it's this. Christ Jesus made the good confession. He did not shirk. He did not sidestep. There was no evasive maneuver. And just as Christ proclaimed his kingship, so believers must confess Christ, church. We must. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to read again 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 to 16. And as we do, as we uh, read these words together, I encourage you in your heart... Make the good confession once again. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. Join me. 
He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Lord, this morning we just uh, thank you that we could gather, that we could celebrate you, Lord, that we could worship you, that we could enjoy fellowship with one another. Father, that we could remember the gospel and that divine transaction that happened in the heavenlies and on earth that Christ was traded for sinful man. Jesus, we thank you. You did not shirk the Father's purpose. You fulfilled the purpose for which you were sent. You confessed, I am the Christ, and you bore sin in, our, in your body on that tree. And Jesus, this morning, as you made that confession for us, we make this confession for you. We believe that you are the Lord. You are Christ the Lord, our hope and our joy. Lord, I pray that you would fill your church with joy this morning, that we would experience, God, your grace, your blessing. God, that we would experience the forgiveness of our sins and the, and the empowerment of the Spirit to make our Savior known. Lord, would you bless your people? And we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.